0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Matt and I are going to discuss a key understanding. Uh, I I hope it speaks to people in a healing sort of fashion. The, The practical aspect of it comes into focus with the recognition of the primacy of shame.
1: I'm wondering how we embody that now in the reality of the church. So I guess I'm thinking of things like, you know, maybe confession uh, or forgiveness or things like that. In other words, I guess, give us some some tools that we can use to sort of put this thing to work in our lives so that we can really begin to to appropriate the facts of the incarnation, of the death, of the resurrection of Christ the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, what, do we, what can we do that are sort of practical things that can help us? Because I do think that to, from one degree to another, all of us have issues with shame. We all wear clothes. You know, it's not like we're leaving the house naked, right? It's like we're all subject and still, I think, to some degree or another to shame. And I think that we're being free to be the people that we're, we were created to be. And I do think you said a long time ago that the thing about shame is it incapacitates one to be there for the other. Right, like if you if you read the Genesis story, the last thing that's on Adam's mind is looking out for Eve. You know, uh, there's an incapacity there. It's the I was naked, I was afraid, so I hid, and I heard you, and you know, I heard your voice. There is an incapacity to love or to be there for the other, and I think that we all feel that to one degree or another. And so I'm wondering what you know in the church, uh, maybe it's friendship. What are some ways, some practical ways, that we can have victory over this otherwise domineering force?
0: Yeah, I, I like the, the language there. You know, this is uh, the, the language of presence and absence is the same thing. That what we need, this is Derrida, but I think it's also biblical, and it's very psychoanalytic. That is that there's a lost presence. That is that in some way we, we're filled with uh, the longing for the comforting presence of the other a person who is caught up in shame simply can't be present there for the other there is an incapacity there's a hidden you know they're they're hiding they're too busy hiding to have any kind of authentic presence there and so in this sense shame is an incapacitating of love of of an enduring love because you're too caught up in in hiding the presence that's given to us in God, and of course Derrida plays with the word presence and present or grace, it is a grace that's given to us, that this is the image that in that place of suffering, that place of shame, that seems to be precisely the place that Christ meets us. You know, this is the the story of Paul and he's kind of undone that he he had his total confidence in the law and is undone by that part of what we're describing and i think this is the thing the language i i'm always think is it may appear inadequate you know death defeats death i think that's true but of course the problem is that the the structure that we're describing that paul is describing is one of deceit it's a deceived structure that is that we inhabit a lie and so the language in some way is going to not ring true that you know sin deceived me in regard to the law or this is the Lacanian picture that the three-part self that there's the ego or the imaginary and there's the symbolic but all of that then is really the function of a three-part lie and the the death-dealing part of that lie is precisely the part that does not rise to consciousness that it is the thing you know this is the death drive the death instinct I think it is the living death in the New Testament in some way we don't have access to that because of the very nature of the deception that we believe and so part of the repentance you know I think this is the the restructuring the transformation of the mind the new birth that lie or that deception that really orders our world and gives meaning to uh, everything, that lie is undone, and suddenly the meaning that we have falls apart. And so I think that that's key to understanding then what's happening in the community of the saved or in the church, that now that the thing that we were deceived by no longer controls. And so things like confession of sin you know as i described it in the japanese context oh that would be the equivalent of suicide strangely enough stephen pattison describes western church in the same terms he he does a exhaustive survey of christian theology and christian literature and he finds no one uh, i think maybe one person i can't remember but, but his point with that is is primarily negative that, there is an incapacity to acknowledge the discussion that we're having right here. That is that people can always project the shame experience upon others, but the theological honesty is just lacking. People can't say, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm subject to this and they can't talk about it. And that then pervades church life that our whole church life, the way it's structured is not dealing at the levels that we're talking about. In fact, in as much as it's not it may aggravate it it may cover it over but it's not going to address it and so I think the the imagery of true fellowship true openness to the other true capacity for confession that's a necessary part of the opening of, of a, a kind of agape love that is the the sharing in the fellowship of the Trinity that first of all that the the things that Uh, are so important to us that we would keep hidden, we put them in their proper perspective. We recognize, oh, no, that's not really who I am, and I need to get rid of that because it's not essential. Remember the ego and the false structure of the ego. It's the equivalent in Paul's picture of I have been crucified with Christ. And so it is this process the crucifixion of the i doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt a person because the i it, it's all a false construct anyway and so it's no longer i who live but it, but it's christ who lives within me that is its reality now we have access to reality whereas before we did not have that access so i think that's important to put into place as we begin to picture then what a healthy life in the body of Christ would look like.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think you just need a good friend who can remind you. I mean, one time you told me, you know, you said, you're not your sin. You know, don't forget that you're not your sin, because I think that we would imagine we would believe the lie, that that is who we are, that that identity that you just called a construct is actually a real thing, and that that's maybe even the real us. I mean, we say things like, the air is human. And so we kind of betray that notion whenever we say that what it means to be truly human is to be sinful. We betray the humanity of Christ, right? Because Jesus was without sin. He was more human than any of us. So we would mistake our sin for ourselves, you know, or our compulsions to repeat or our neuroses or, um, you know, our sort of mental illnesses or just, you know, whatever our addictions or bad habits of thought or action are. And I think that it's really just helpful to remember. It's been helpful to me to just think to myself, um, you know, this isn't who I am anymore in Christ. Whether I realize it or not, my baptism, the participation in the the death of Christ. I mean, I have a good friend, Tom Evans, and he he would always uh, preach on Romans 6. And he would say, this is true whether you believe it or not, that you've been freed from sin that sin is no longer your master, that you're not a slave anymore, that you really have been set free. It's just that now you've got to learn how to live this thing out because those are the things that, of course, that you're ashamed of, right? Those behaviors, those habits, those addictions, those sins are things that um, you're now ashamed of, you know, in retrospect. You don't have to do those things anymore. You've been set free who we truly are is who we are uh, in Christ and who we are in the beloved community. That's the other thing that you said was that, you know, we, we, we lack the ability to really uh, explain ourselves to ourselves. You know, we need someone else who maybe knows us better than we know ourselves because our shame constrains us. We can't really explain who we are. I mean, if I were to describe myself to you, it's probably gonna, if I was being like really honest, it'd probably be like a bunch of bad stuff that you'd go, Hey, you know, don't forget about some of the good stuff. Here's some of the stuff that, that, you know, you are to me. Because I think that shame really does. It It deforms the way that we think about ourselves and about God and about other people. It really does incapacitate us in, in more ways than one. And so I do think that you need a friend. So that in a very simple way, who can act as a therapist, a good biblical word. Uh, that's the that's the wonderful thing about something like confession. You know, I mean, James says, "Confess your sins to your brother, so that you may be healed." This is the thing that we sometimes may lose in the in some of the traditions. You know, where there's a shame about shame, even within the church. Where else are you supposed to go if if you're struggling with sin or an addiction or something like this? I mean, the church is the one place that you should be able to go to receive healing. But I'm afraid that oftentimes there's a shame about shame. You know, we don't want to be ostracized from the group like the situation you were describing in Japan. It's like, we don't want to get kicked out of the group. So we keep our shame a secret and it's compounded and it's, it's exponentially more difficult to deal with because I think that we're meant to overcome this thing in community. And so I really do think that things like, you know, well, in some traditions, you know, confessions is considered a sacrament. Things like the, the Eucharist, where we come into the real presence of the the crucified Christ, you know, who died on the, the, the tree of shame, um, not only for our guilt, but to remove our shame. And I, lo- I love this passage, and you told us many times, you know, that this is one of, the, you think, one of the key passages in the New Testament that appears in all the Gospels. And so I'll use the one from Mark 8, and then maybe you can give us some commentary on it. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 34, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life would lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory and with you know of the father and with the holy angels and i think that in a parallel passage, I believe it says something like, but whoever confesses me before men, you know that the Son will confess before the Father and, and before the angels. And so maybe you could help us. This, you do have said many times that this is sort of a key verb. Can you maybe help us to understand how to make sense of this logic that seems very counterintuitive to our experience outside of Christ and how it might be able to help us to heal from
0: shame? Yeah, the, the phrase there, you know, whoever would lose his life, that's what it feels like, That's that you're going to, to, to lay down life. But, of course, what Christ is saying is, yeah, but you're not really losing anything because that he who would save his life, he's the one who loses it. That's actually des- describing the whole, psych- you know, it's describing a kind of masochistic psychoanalytic construct. That is that we have an attachment to life to saving our life and of course the the whole point is we can't obtain it that attachment may appear as a neurosis people enjoy their sickness people enjoy their perversions now this this sounds bizarre but we kind of know it's true that there is a kind of pleasure in the pain there is a kind of attachment to the disease Because the sickness is all we have. And, of course, this describes addiction, and maybe addiction most clearly, but I think it describes all of our lives, that we would just continue to do the same thing over and over, recognizing that there is no different outcome, but hoping for it because the process itself we imagine is the saving of life. You know, he who would save his life will lose it. This is the perfect formula for the death drive. The death drive is then the, the drive to gain life through death. It's that contradictory. And, and we can see this in people's lives, that people kill themselves out of pure pleasure, or, or they kill themselves in the attempt to establish themselves. That You can do that in any number of ways. You can do it literally, or you can do it over a lifetime. But the point is, this is a kind of living death in Christ's depiction. He who would save his life will lose it. We're all about salvation and salvation systems. But unfortunately, even Christian salvations are still at the front end of that phrase. They're still misunderstanding the disease, and they've turned God and theology, and you know, all of that can become part of the disease. I, I often believe there's no one more sick than sick Christians because they've missed the, the diagnosis of the disease that Christ is given. They've mistaken the sickness for the cure. It, it, they imagine a whole theological system that, in fact, is reinforcing the thing that is killing them. And so some of the sickest people you will meet, I mean, literally, that statistically, the, the people that you're going to run into and, and people that have been institutionalized. I believe that, that a bad reading of this that we're talking about creates or aggravates. And, you know, once you've, once you've done away with the, the diagnosis and cure, I don't know that there, that there is no other diagnosis and cure. You know, even in psychoanalysis, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, the point is that you really can't rid yourself of the death drive. You can manipulate it. You really can't rid yourself of this construct of the deceived self, you know, the ego, the the imaginary, the symbolic. But, of course, the point of Christianity is, no, actually you can get rid of that whole construct. And I think that's the second half of the phrase, that he who would save his life will lose it, but he who would lose his life for my sake and the Gospels. That is, where is the reality in this? It's a relinquishing of unreality for reality. It's a turning to the one who has life that we can gain life. But to get there, you have to recognize the diagnosis that we have. This is the revelation. You know Why do we need revelation? Because the very nature of sin is such that it needs exposure. Revelation breaks into the deception and exposes it. I think that's the very picture of the New Testament. Revelation isn't just more information or, or additional truth. Revelation is the undoing of one system and displacing it with another. And I think this is, this is the, the key here, that we relinquish. And this is inclusive. Once we understand that the saving of life, the salvation systems of this world, whether it be capitalism, nationalism, some sort of personal growth, the salvation systems of this world are killing us. They are our morality that is our immorality.
1: You know, for a lot of us, our salvation system is a lot more maybe mundane than something as grandiose as fame or fortune, the capitalist markets or whatever. It might just be something as as mundane as addiction. As someone who is a, a former heroin addict, 15 years ago, but I struggled for many years with addiction and it was a sort of salvation system for lack of a better word. It's like, well, how do you, how do you ultimately escape shame apart from Christ? Well, there's only a couple of things that you can do. And at the time you don't even probably realize that this is what it is, but you know, you can numb the pain, you know, you can get high, Uh, you can prolong the inevitable thing that, you know, is coming, which is death. There's really no alternative. And the reason why I brought up humility earlier is because from personal experience, I mean, I just, for me, uh, part of the resolution of the whole problem was to admit, you're like, okay, I can't, I can't save myself, you know, like yeah, this might take many painful experiences for a person to come to the understanding and to go, well. I've tried it all. I've tried all the different ways. Maybe you have tried fame, and fortune, and pleasure, and and whatever else, success, and nothing has worked for you. It hasn't saved you. You still find yourself in despair. And for me, I just know that I had to humble myself, basically, you know, by saying, by first of all, admitting that. So whenever I say confession, I think that really is a key component. You know, when you think about the tools that the church gives you to heal. That just, to, just to admit, you know, and remember, uh, in the Christian church, part of this, a lot of times, you know, what they would do is that they would say, okay, you know, if anybody wants, needs to come forward, give their life to Christ. And so you have this opportunity to come before the congregation. And, you know, you don't have to maybe get into all the dirty details, but you can say something like, well, I've been struggling with this or with that. And I think that you really have, you have taken a real step in overcoming this sort of monster of shame, because the way that you combat it is through, is maybe it's a twofold thing where it's like the humility of, and maybe it's not before the whole congregation. Maybe it's just before a friend or a priest or whoever, where you say, you know what? I got to admit, you know, here's this thing that's, that's, I'm, I'm subject to it's gotten, it's gotten its uh, grip around my throat and I admit it. And maybe it's just even starting with belief. That, man, maybe I need to believe that God is real and humble myself, that I can't save myself, that maybe I really do need a Savior. And if you think about baptism, so at least in my experience as an adult, part of what you do is you, again, before the congregation of people, you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of the living God. And before all the people, you kind of commit to following after him. And you go, you know, and then in the early church, I think that they sort stripped you naked. <laughs> so there's a real confrontation with like your shame, you know what I mean? Where it's like, well, oh, so you're, you're going to stand na- naked and face to the past. We're now Satan. <laughs> and you know, you're in the East, so we're going to baptize you, then we're going to put a white robe around you, you know, to cover up your shame. And so you're given like these real world tools to humble yourself and to confess that you really are, you know, you're a sinner. I know that that might be kind of a taboo thing. It's like, well, who wants to admit that? Well, that's the whole point, you know? Like, in my reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's kind of a big deal (laughs) to just admit, like, I have sinned against the Lord. Once you make that step, it's such a small step, too, if you think about it. It's really not that giant of a leap of humility to, to say, you know what? I've sinned against the Lord. But once you make even that tiniest movement towards Christ, then it's like he's like the father in the prodigal son story. You know, he comes running for you to cover you. He puts the ring on him, and he, he takes care of his, of his son. And so I do think that the church really does give us, if we have a right understanding, uh, of some, some very valuable, you know, this is why I've always kind of had a problem with the, the whole thing where it's like at the end of the service, you know, the pastor says, okay, now everyone bow your head. And, you know, if anybody wants to come to Christ, you know, just raise your hand, and no one has to know, you know, but I'll know, and the Lord will know, and, and then we can talk after, after the service. It's like, well, that never would have happened in the early church, like, because part of what it meant to become a Christian was you had to make a public confession of Christ. You know, you really did have to renounce. Satan and the powers <laughs> and, you know, in, in whatever way they, had, uh, and they held sway over you, it might have meant the life of you and your family. you know it really was a way of taking up your cross and being identified like sort of publicly identifying yourself with Christ and so now there's all sorts of different ways that you could do that. Maybe you can do it, you can use your social media platform, maybe you can use your voice at your, your workplace or whatever. but that I think that you can confess Christ before men in a way that's not just like um preaching or whatever but that it's it, gi- it gives you victory over shame is what i'm trying to get at that, that that you really can heal because now you have an identity that is a confidence saint paul talks about you know the confidence that he has for the day that you can appropriate this identity I, you know outside of christ i really don't think that anybody knows who they are they might think that they know but like you've taught us before, you know, it's if you ask someone, you know, why do you want to get that new, that next championship? You already got five championships. Why do you want the six? You know, it's like, well, because, you know, you, you, I, I don't know. I just want another one. You know, it's like, uh, how much more money do you want to make? Well, just a little bit more. We don't know what drives us. We don't even know really. We might think that we know. But, of course, everything that you've been saying to us today is saying that, that, the judgment sounds like it's an exposure of that sort of shadow self or false self, and then all that's really left is who you really are. And I think that in as much as we can not be ashamed of our association with Christ, to not be ashamed of our theology or our, our sort of differences that we have, maybe with the philosophies of the world or the ideology of the state or the, the economics of the state, the racist sort of, you know, propaganda of the, of the culture that we live in, In other words, like there's all these different ways that you really can identify with Christ and to confess him before men with an alternative worldview, with an alternative way of um, doing peace, of introducing love into the equation rather than violence. And in so doing, it's like you really are identifying yourself, I think, with Christ in a way that I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to get at though, is that you are healing. That you're becoming integrated. So instead of being disintegrated, that what that healing, you know, and in, in the East they call theosis or fully integrated wholeness. God is in your life. You know, He's He's making you into a a whole being where shame does the exact opposite. You know, you're sort of falling apart. You're hiding. You're afraid. You're running. You're you know, you're hiding behind the trees from God. It's sort of a ridiculous thing. And I, I guess all that to say that in as much as we have a Christian identity and that that's sort of the most important thing about who we are, and we're not ashamed of that. Does that make sense? It's like, that's a, to me, that's a really key component of all this, is that it's kind of like, I'm not just a Christian. It's like, I'm a really, like, I'm just, I'm not ashamed at all of being a Christian. Like, I follow Jesus, and I, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm, uh, you know, I'm nonviolent. Or that I'm this and that. I know that that's countercultural or, or whatever, but I don't care because I follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed of it. That there's a real freedom in that. Now you might end up on a on a cross with him too, you know, but I think that on the cross Christ will be there with. So I do think that there's a healing that comes with the sort of humility of not saying that like I'm the I'm the man, but that Christ is the man.
0: I th- I think that. Healing, therapy. It's a good New Testament word that we've lost. We have the healing ministry of Jesus, but in some way we can't plug that in theologically. Well, the whole point of Christianity is healing. But unfortunately, if, if it's all about guilt, guilt is a, a kind of particular thing that really doesn't call for holistic healing. And so shame, I think, plugs in the healing ministry, the therapy of what can occur. And I, I just saw that in you and several others that came through that the gospel in some way, though you had heard it all your life, in some way it, it never addressed the human predicament or your predicament. And, and, of course, I'm talking about myself here because over the long term, it required going to Japan and, and facing this in myself and realizing that there is an understanding of the new testament that misses the the healing ministry as it ties into the salvation ministry of christ that there's real healing to be had from sin shame death.
1: it's going to require i think vulnerability it it requires almost like the humility of vulnerability I, i think to to heal from shame because it's it's like it's almost like you instead of having a shame about shame I think that it's almost like you got to kind of confront your shame head on to name it and to call it. You say, well, this, it is what it is. You know, the power of shame is sort of undone once you bring it out into the open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what do you have yeah. to be ashamed about if you, if you bring it out into the open and just say, well, here, here, here's what it is. And I don't mean that you have to, like, tweet it out or whatever. I just mean that even if you share it with a brother who's compassionate and understanding a wise, someone spiritual that can restore you in a spirit of gentleness and of love, it's like, in a real way, you have just disarmed that bomb that was a ticking time bomb that was um, controlling you in some way. You know, either we believe what James says or we don't. But he says that if you confess your sins to your brother, you'll be healed. And I think that he means, you know, what is sin? It's just inextricably linked with change in the Bible.
0: And I think it puts a new, as you're describing it, a new weight on friends, on friendship, on fellowship. There's nothing more important, nothing more life-giving, nothing more healing than the connectedness that we gain from our friends, from other people. Unfortunately, fellowship has become a cheap word that people don't assign a first order reality to this but understand that the focus on shame as alienation incapacity for friendship for relationship the the resolution is a, an opening to relationship i think that puts a new weight on just the doing this journey together the, that that's what it's all about that there is this disconnectedness that that we need to dwell there with our brothers and sisters
1: i mean i think that's it for sure and sorry i mean as we've been talking i've drank about three cups of coffee and i'm all getting all excited and fired up now you know so but but i think about my journey you know into the christian faith over the last 14 years and it's just without question it's my friendship with brothers and sisters that is absolutely for sure like Yeah, you know, it's important to, you know, definitely to to read and to study and to pray and the sacraments and all these different things. But um, it really is the love. Uh, It's love that undoes shame. It's shame that incapacitates us to love. And it's love that undoes shame. And so I think that you have to begin to learn how to love yourself. Jesus says you have to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But I always thought when I first became a Christian, I said, yeah, but I don't love myself. How am I going to love my neighbor? I don't, and I mean, Jesus meant, well, you know, yeah, but you eat, you love yourself in in the sense that you sort of take care of yourself so that you eat and stuff like that. You know, you're clothed or whatever, but in a real profound sense, I think many of us don't love ourselves. We kind of have a contempt, maybe even like a very profound, deep contempt for ourselves. That of course is, is shame. And so you need, you need, you need people to love you, you know, and and you have to become vulnerable, I think, you know, allow yourself. I think that it takes a real vulnerability to just even allow yourself to be loved. You have to humble yourself and to receive the love of God, to receive the love of the other, because shame would refuse it, you know, even from God. You might not even allow your friends to love on you because it's like you're, there's something that's blocking it. And I would just say that that something is maybe less guilt and more something like shame. And so I've needed my friends. The Lord has sent me friends from everywhere I've went since I've been a Christian. It's like he has sent people who have been like family. It's definitely that love that gives you or has given me, you know, a freedom uh, that I just, I never experienced before I entered into the the community of the church. In other words, something very real happened. I, I used to experience life as very lonely, as full of all sorts of different addictions. All I know is like the, the man in, in John. It's like, well, I don't know. I was blind and now I see. All I know is that that's how my life was before I I knew Jesus and before I was living uh, in the church. And then once I started living in the church, like things started to, like, to change. Things started to change about me. I started to become a very different type of person. But I don't think that's just because I'm so great. I think that that's because the Holy Spirit has been working on me, not least through my friends. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I have both you and Tom and, and others that have come out of addictions, and it's hard for, for many people to hear this, but, but once you hear it, it's just everywhere. It opens up Scripture in a new way, and it, and it uh, gives you a different, I think it puts the focus uh, uh, in a very different place.
1: Well, which part I'd like to, you know, which part of it is hard
0: to hear? I don't quite understand. I think that people have an attachment, a religious attachment. And to call it this, you know, that I think that the, the way that this is approached, in other words, what, what we're describing is a whole new vocabulary that it's there in the, in the Bible. But for many people to talk about the problem in terms of a real-world identifiable sickness— a neurosis, addiction. In other words, we're, we're dealing at the deep grammar of the human predicament. And I think people aren't used to Christianity addressing things at that level. And so there is a sense in which a kind of simplistic, systemic theological system is, first of all, it's simpler. It's easier to comprehend. I, I don't know if people have attachment to that, like they have attachment to other systems. This breaks apart all of the, uh, you know, I think it breaks apart bad theology. But in fact, maybe bad theology is the last to go.
1: I think so. I've told you before that I I was maybe 12 years old and I was walking down the street and I was kind of taking this side street, walking home, and this guy came out of nowhere. And, you know, he was doing some like street evangelizing type stuff. And he was like, you know, are you saved? I think he had maybe like a chick track or whatever. He said, Hey man, are you, you know, are you saved? And I asked him, I said, saved from what? (laughs) He immediately went into kind of like the standard sort of like guilt Mm -hmm. um, story, right? It's like, well, you know, you've sinned and you know, you need saved from hell. And I remember as he, I didn't say this to him, but I remember thinking to myself as he was talking, I was like, man, I don't really know about all that stuff. But I got some stuff in my life that I, and I was young, you know, I was like, I got some stuff. I wish that I could be saved from right now. And I, and I couldn't articulate it at the time, but it was shame. Mm -hmm. I wish that I could have been set free to be myself.
0: Yeah. What he was offering was a narrative that it was sin and salvation of a different order. In other words that, Oh, here's this package. Let me tell you your problem. You're going to hell and here's the solution. Now you're going to heaven. And to take that as the reality about yourself, uh, it kind of it gives you a kind of false pride, you know. That hey, I got it. I'm saved. I'm part of the elect. And so there is a kind of Christianity that feeds off the same sort of egotism that you're just going to find in every other nationalism, or in other words, that uh, uh, evangelicalism feeds into nationalism. I think because they're the same sickness. But what you're, what you're describing and what we're describing is something that in some way would undo that, that in fact it doesn't give you special access, it doesn't make you above things, it doesn't, in other words, it is an in, in engagement with uh, the, the world that we're all a part of and addressing that world. Whereas if you cancel that, the reality that we all face and put it somewhere else and Give, you, give yourself a problem solution there, you can kind of live with that and float through this world as if it's an unreality. And Christianity can just aggravate the whole saving of life and losing it. In other words, you're losing it, the whole thing slipping through your fingers precisely because of your confidence in this peculiarly wicked theology that I think is a kind of sickness. You know, this is the way that Kierkegaard is going to talk about, that maybe the denial of the sickness unto death is the way that we have this sickness. And so Christianity can itself be a sickness unto death.
1: When I was 12 or 13 and that guy approached me on the street, you know, I didn't need a ticket to heaven. I needed to know, I needed to know who I was. I needed an identity. Like, I needed to know who I was. I mean, I was really struggling even at a young age. And it's like, and if I would have, I think if I would have found that, earlier than 27 years old, I would have been saved like an enormous amount of suffering. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would have been given like a real world sort of like an identity that I could have, you know, and even as a kid, I think that you can, you can receive an identity in Christ to say, oh, wow, there's this, uh, there's this other way to sort of live and move and have my being that doesn't have as much to do with sort of fear and shame and more about, you know, faith and hope and love. It's like, well, that's that's like a real thing that I think that a young man can wrap his head around, you know, if, if just given the opportunity. But this guy was giving me something else. It was like uh it was like a, maybe doing some paperwork and kind of getting your, you know, your life insurance taken care of or whatever. Whenever Adam, you know, the story in the Bible is is that Adam lost himself. He lost him. He lost his communion with God. He, he, he was alienated from God and from himself and from his wife and he was falling apart. I think that what Christ is offering is to put us back together and that's what we need and that's what salvation is.
0: I think that's it. I think that's it. That it's a, a, addressing a real world predicament with a real world lived reality uh, that gives us an alternative to the kind of unreality that his uh, life consuming.
1: I think that's I think that's
0: it. Hey, this has been this we've been wanting to do this, Matt. I'm glad that that we we've, we've got it. Uh, we've finally gotten to it. I, I think this is an important. I can't imagine a more important topic. I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at Patreon.com/PaulAxton, or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/donate.